Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 183 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and uh, when I sort my bra off last night, a bit of toasted corn fell out. And yeah, yeah, I did eat it, despite having brushed my teeth. This is how I'm handling alert level four. That story just got classier and classier <laughs> and classier. You are welcome. I mean, I was impressed you put a bra on. <laughs> I know, right? I'd been out, that's why. And it's quite cold. I do find they provide an extra level of warmth. Particularly if you stuff them with food. Yeah, exactly. I'm like a, I'm like a squirrel. Like a, a not safe for work squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this week I discovered all you need to occupy a small child is an abandoned tractor. I mean, I love that because I love what happened with the small child and the tractor, but I also like the way you delivered it as if to say, parents, what are you stressing about? Just get yourself an abandoned tractor. Exactly Ten a penny in London, mate. I mean, at points, my friend and I kept saying, oh my God, can you imagine if this drives off? But yeah, totally fun and safe. I mean, there are lots of places small fingers could get stuck and yeah. It's best not to think about it too much. Did you get on the abandoned tractor with the child? No, we just stood either side in a kind of cautious and ready manner. I'm Jen Offord and this is the sound of silence. I'm not going to lie to you, Jen. It's not ideal for a podcast. <laughs> no, but it is. It's it's good news. Good for your sanity. Yeah, my daughter was at nursery. Oh, happy day. <laughs> oh, just wait, just for Jen. There we go. Oh, Can I just interrupt the silence to say, Jen? Tractor. Did you get up an abandoned tractor? <laughs> I think you could fit one of those in your in your flat, Jen. I could probably fit one outside on the little terrace, yeah. just looking. Small one, you know. Yeah. Like I said, ten a penny in London. Just go and pick yeah, one up after easy, we finish. Easy. Later on, Emma Reevy, CEO of excellent charity, the Trussell Trust, talks to me about why the Trust is having to give out 7,000 emergency food parcels a day this December. <laughs> the impossible decisions faced by swathes of family living below the breadline in the UK and why universal credit has not been a success, to put it mildly. I speak to actor Danny Harmer about the enduring appeal of Tracy Beaker doing a panto at eight months pregnant and keeping your feet on the ground as a child star. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about, in inverted commas, ladies. I mean, it's your most enigmatic one yet, Jen. Well, you'll have to listen. I think you you should have absolutely finished that sentence with dot, 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 (laughs) eyebrow raise. And in Rated or Dated, we watch Breakfast at Tiffany's Uh, and ask all the big questions. Like, how is it possible (laughs) to go so wrong when your source material is Truman Capote? Why wasn't in cold blood having a birthday? (laughs) But first, brave women, big cleanups and bold outer garments. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph where we are still rocked by the news that it is possible to eat too much cheese. Now, talk me through this, because this is actually news to me. So apparently, Chloe Maidley, child of Richard and Judy, was rushed to hospital after eating five wheels of camembert. I mean, my face isn't good for a podcast, but... I don't want to live in a world where it's possible to eat too much cheese. Do you think you could do five wheels of camembert in one sitting? 
Probably not, because I'm not that much of a fan of camembert to eat that much of it. But I reckon I could eat its equivalent in a variety of cheeses. For context, Chloe Madeley is like married to or is partners with like a former rugby player and I think she's sort of rebranded as like an Instagram fitness expert or whatever that's kind of like what she does now so she's pretty fit and healthy you know muscly lady I imagine she can tear through some calories where am I going with this so like I imagine her metabolism is good basically is what I'm trying to say so if anyone could eat five wheels of cheese Fuck it, give it a go. But I think I'd be sick. Dear listener, I know no facts on this, so maybe we (laughs) should move on. Dear listener, (laughs) science. Big round of applause this week for a couple of women, starting with Conservative MP Kate Griffiths. So I'm going to call Kate here in order to differentiate her from her estranged husband and former MP Andrew Griffiths, who, a High Court judge has concluded raped his wife when she was asleep and subjected her to coercive control. The allegations against the former MP were made in a case that began as an application by Griffiths in 2019, who argued that he should be allowed to spend time with a child at the centre of the case. Griffiths had opposed publication of the judgment dating from November last year, but his arguments were rejected by the High Court and then the Court of Appeal, Kate waived her right to anonymity and supported journalists' bid to publish the judgment. She said, I supported publication of the family court's findings and waived my right to anonymity because I recognise the unique position I am in to campaign and improve the outcomes of cases such as this for those who endure domestic violence and the actions taken to protect the children involved. Griffiths was a junior minister in July 2018 when the Sunday Mirror reported he had bombarded two constituents with explicit messages. He sent them more than 2,000 texts, sometimes referring to himself as Daddy, claiming that he enjoyed, quote, licking naughty girls and offering hundreds of pounds for sex. That's their MP, just a reminder, that is their MP. All this while Griffiths presented himself as a supporter of women's causes, including co-founding Women to Win, an organisation dedicated to electing more female Conservative MPs. He also campaigned for upskirting to be outlawed. In November 2019, he stepped down as MP for Burton in East Staffordshire. Kate Griffiths was subsequently elected to represent the same seat. As well as raping his wife, Griffiths was found to have used coercive and controlling behaviour to ensure that she submitted to his sexual demands. He hit her, pushed her into a wall, put his hands around her neck, spat at her and threw a tray of food over her. He was also found to have used violence on multiple occasions towards a female relative of his who was not named. Neither Kate nor her lawyer have said whether criminal charges will be pursued. Other female MPs, including Jess Phillips and Rosie Duffield, spoke out in support of Kate's decision to go public. Phillips said, quote, Kate Griffiths is a hero. A big well done also to Kate's barrister, Dr Charlotte Proudman, who is having a really good 2021. Writing in The Guardian, she said, this case is not over. Andrew Griffiths is still allowed to have supervised contact with their child. And if that isn't awful enough, She has to pay half of the costs of supervised contact. This is financial control, both sickening and perverse. I appealed against the decision on behalf of Kate, 
we are waiting for the judgment. More news as that happens. And speaking of having a good 2021, another shout out to US journalist Barry Wise. As you may know, one of the trials I talked about in last week's BT, that of actor Jesse Smollett, concluded with him being found guilty of four out of five charges. Wise has another great podcast linked to that trial, talking about the history of hate crime hoaxes and the truth about who they hurt. Spoiler alert. It's actual victims of hate crimes. You can find her podcast, honestly, wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. That story is fucking mad. Just, I mean, it's horrific. Imagine the the balls of a man who would behave like that and then seeking to get some sort of court order to see his child. Imagine the balls of being an MP mm. and sending those texts and not feeling in any way vulnerable. Yeah. Just uh, like the arrogance yep. that you would have to have, like the narcissism you would have to have to behave like that. And if she had understandably wanted to protect herself and her family from this, then we would never, ever know about it. Mm. Well, good for her. Indeed. Good for her. Well, given that it's now over 15 years since the arrest of News of the World Royal Editor Clive Goodman and private investigator Glenn Mulcair for hacking the telephones and accessing the voicemail messages of members of the royal family, sparking a metropolitan police investigation into widespread hacking practices at the newspaper, it's easy to forget that many of the victims of this are still seeking justice. In fact, revealing losses of £68 million between 2018 and 2019 in 2020, the Sun and Sun on Sunday newspapers claimed declining print sales and settlements in phone hacking cases were the reason for this. However, the parent company of those two newspapers, Newsgroup Newspapers, has never admitted that phone hacking took place at the Sun, only at the now-defunct News of the World. Indeed, its former editor Andy Coulson was convicted of one charge of conspiracy to intercept voicemails back in 2014, while former editor of The Sun, Rebecca Brooks, was cleared of all charges. Just last week, one of the many who took legal action against the newspaper company, the actress Sienna Miller, settled her phone hacking claim for a confidential figure. That figure is nonetheless thought to be a sizeable amount. The settlement was made on the basis that there was no admission of illegal activity or guilt by NGN. However, a High Court judge ruled last week that Miller could publicly repeat some of her suspicions based on evidence brought forward during her case. Speaking outside the court on Thursday, Miller said that The Sun nearly ruined her life after it found out she was pregnant when she was 23 years old in 2005. She says by obtaining her medical records. She added, It is part of my case that Rebecca Brooks confirmed to those that represent me that she knew about my pregnancy in the most vulnerable moment of my life. It is part of my case that she assured those that represent me she would not print that information. And it is part of my case that she, the son, did print that information. She said the newspaper's actions shattered me, damaged my reputation at times beyond repair and caused me to accuse my family and friends of selling information that catapulted me into an intense state of paranoia and fear. Their actions, their words, their tittle-tattle compelled me into making decisions about my future and ultimately about my own body that I have to live with every single day. Miller said that she had not wanted to settle 
that she had hoped to bring the case to trial, but that this was not an option available to anyone without countless millions at their disposal. And she said that should anyone else find themselves able to take a legal case further than she had, she would gladly give evidence in any future trial. Obviously, there's a lot of legal stuff Mm. around this, so there's not a huge amount to be said here. NGN denies the allegations, but... Fair play to Sienna Miller for taking her case as far as she possibly could. Yeah, she's right about the money because it does cost an absolute fortune. I mean, the only reason Hacked Off got quite as far as they did was because Mosley bankrolled them. Mm. It's nuts, isn't it? Because when you see someone with the profile of Sienna Miller, okay, she's not like Julia Roberts or whatever, mm. but she's a successful actress. She's probably got a fair bit of money in the bank. I think when you look at someone like her saying, this is not a viable you know, I I can't do this, I don't have the money Mm. to do this. It does kind of hammer home the point that, like, what the fuck could anyone else possibly expect to achieve? Very, very little against the kind of heft of the lawyers of of Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And, again, good for her, because she's had a fucking good crack at it, and it's taken a long time, and I can't begin to imagine what a horrible experience it must have been. Yeah. There is a really good podcast, Matt Ford and Alice Levine's podcast, British Scandal, does a really good series about the news of the world hacking scandal. It's really interesting if anybody fancies giving it a listen. Well, thanks. Do you want some good news, Jen? Yes, I should like that very much. Thank you. Well, I have some. I'm not going to pretend to understand it, but here goes. Swiss-based company Terra. That's what I'm going to pronounce it as. <laughs> has reported what it describes as spectacular results after a year of decontamination on a 2.5 acre plot of land located in the radioactive exclusion zone that has existed in the Ukraine since an accident destroyed a reactor at the Chernobyl plant in 1986. The company has announced that radioactive pollution in the soil decreased by 47% and in the air above the ground by an average of 37% a year after the installation of its NSPS technology. Now, I'm going to tell you what that stands for, Jen, but I don't know if it's going to add anything to the story. Nucleus Separation Passive System. Oh, yeah. Nucleus Separation Passive System, sure. All, yeah, I know. All becomes yeah. clear now. <laughs> what does that actually mean? Well, I'd advise you to do some extra reading to find out how the hell it actually works. But the end result is that the firm believes total remediation of the area is, quote, seriously conceivable within four years without moving any earth or using any chemicals. Wow. I know. Just imagine what an NSPS system must be like, Jen. (laughs) Must be really good. I'm literally picturing it now. (laughs) Frank Muller, co-founder and CEO of Exalterra, added that the technology could be used at other sites where accidents occurred, including the Fukushima plant in Japan, itself surrounded by an exclusion zone, since it was damaged by an earthquake and subsequent tidal wave in 2011. Wow. Science. Yeah. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we stand on the doorstep in an awesome Wenger-inspired puffer jacket, sobbing, why always me? (laughs) As sexism takes the fall once more for the crimes of others. Well, it's probably more accurate to say the crimes of many. So a legitimate question to ask... 
Why did just one person, former spokesperson for Boris Johnson, Allegra Stratton, take the rap for the alleged 2020 number 10 Christmas party? I mean, I can't see anything amiss here, Jen. No. Was it a party? Was it a cheese and wine evening? Who fucking knows? Ha 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 ha! Apparently there's a quiz as well. Oh, yeah. And additionally, which the Prime Minister... Well, someone's there's, there's photographic evidence of it occurring. Do you so. think his first question was, how many children do I have? <laughs> Closest answer gets... <laughs> COVID. <laughs> but what the evidence in last week's video nasty of Stratton et al. laughing their jolly chops off about getting away with it reveals is that sure as fuck, more than one person knew about it. How about the Prime Minister's special advisor, Ed Oldfield, who, in the least surprising news of all time, the Mail Online last week described as a former public schoolboy. No, he's done well for himself, hasn't he? He's done ever so well. Well, he was there, living his best life, putting the questions to Stratton in their mock question and answer session. He still has a job. What about Boris's communications director, Jack Doyle, who, according to sources cited by the BBC, made a speech at the party, which definitely didn't happen. So, not only was that prick actually there, he's also responsible for the department publicly denying the allegations that the party took place. He offered his resignation, the BBC reported, and the Prime Minister said, "Uh uh-uh, you're staying. The optics here are pretty bad, aren't they? (laughs) I see nothing wrong with any of this, Jen. I mean, for a start, they kind of suggest that the Prime Minister really feels like he needs someone on his side in the comms team at the moment. I'd be inclined to suggest he employs someone who's better at their job, but that's just me. It also suggests he's absolutely fine with it being public information that one of his closest aides lies to the electorate. It also suggests that, no, hang on, it doesn't suggest it is an actual fact that the only person to take any responsibility, at the time of recording, of course, because it's Monday, fuck knows what happens by Wednesday. (laughs) I doubt it's a load of resignations. I mean, I agree, that does seem unlikely. The only person to take any responsibility is a woman, and one who was working specifically on comms around the COP26 negotiations at the time of her resignation. Now, Hannah, listener, I don't want to agree with Sarah Vine on anything. Not even that Michael Gove is hot. Especially (laughs) not... (laughs) I made myself feel sick saying that. Oh... But she is quite right to point out the demonisation of women in the public sphere, also highlighting the public attitude to the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Simmons, who last week gave birth to his at least seventh child. (laughs) I am sure I wouldn't like either of these women if I met them. Their proximity to Boris Johnson makes me pretty confident in saying that. However, it is convenient for the Prime Minister and indeed society that we can so easily pass the buck to a woman when something goes wrong. Thank God for Liz Truss, who I I imagine is going to make it pretty easy for him in the future. And who I've just discovered is now our Foreign Secretary. When did that happen? And on that bombshell, I am off to the Outer Hebrides to live off-grid until this whole fucking mess goes away. 
Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by the actor Danny Harmer. Danny, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We are always grateful when people make the time to talk to us, but I have to say in this instance, I'm super grateful because you are currently in rehearsals for a panto. I am, And 20-odd yeah. years of interviewing actors has taught me that, that all of them say panto is the hardest job of all of them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, to be honest, they're not wrong. It is so full-on because you get given... I think we've got, like, less than two weeks to put on, like, the entire show. And, obviously, those two weeks aren't just for us. So we've only really got about, like, five or seven days to actually kind of get the whole show together before we then move into the theatre and it suddenly becomes about lighting and sound. So, uh, yeah, it is really full-on. And I'm doing this all eight months pregnant as well, so I must be absolutely bonkers wowzers <laughs> i know i don't know what 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 am i doing why am i doing this to myself why oh my god you could have you could have a no i shouldn't be saying things like this i was gonna say you could have an oh, on stage no, christmas baby yeah no touch wood that the fairy godmother does not go into labor during her prologue then yeah hopefully it'll be fine children <laughs> need to learn danny they need to learn <laughs> it would yeah certainly teach them a thing or two that's for sure yeah. so that's the sixth you start on the 16th of december i do yeah at the bath theater yeah the bath theater royal the bath theater royal lovely Oh, it's the most gorgeous theatre. I was here, I think, in 2014 with Cinderella, but I was Cinderella that time. So it's so nice to be back. Bath is like the most gorgeous city, especially at Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Not that I'm going to get to see any of it, because (laughs) if I'm not on stage, I'm definitely going to be asleep. So... (laughs) Now, talking of hard work, the Strictly final is coming up, and you understand that. You were in the Strictly final back in 2012. Yeah. What are the last couple of weeks of that like as an experience? Just madness, utter madness. Like, it was all such a blur, and obviously it was like 3,000 years ago for me now. Uh, But I remember just having the best time, but it is really full on because I think we did two dances and we also had like so much press to do uh, along with everything else that strictly kind of throws at you so uh, yeah it is it's mad and it does it, it goes so so quickly but yeah I just have the best time and it's a real pinch me moment standing there you know in the final and you're like oh my goodness look how far I've come I really thought I would be out in week two and here I am at the final so it's the best feeling ever. Well, people always say things like that and they do sound like platitudes. But I mean, what else do you say other than I'm just glad I made it this far? That's the thing. Everyone always asks me about my Strictly experience and I have not got a single bad word to say about it. I got really lucky as well with our year. The press hated us because we all got on so well. They literally (laughs) had nothing to write about. No one was having an affair. There were no fights. (laughs) We just had the best time. And yeah, so it does kind of sound a little bit like a greetings card whenever I talk about Strictly, but I would do it all over again. I really would. Like I say, it looks incredibly hard work. Really, really hard work. Also coming up this week, the Beaker Girls Christmas special. I know. Yes, it's all go, 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 isn't it, (laughs) over Christmas? It's very exciting. The new series, uh, the Beaker Girls, we've done five episodes, which is really exciting. That'll be out on CBC and iPlayer. This series, it feels kind of a bit more grown up I think I guess it's because Jess is just a little bit older who's Tracy's daughter and she's kind of reaching that awful puberty stage (laughs) so (laughs) it's how kind of Tracy and Jess are now dealing with 
almost trying to find like a new kind of relationship because Tracy can't really just mollycoddle her anymore and try and give her a bit more freedom even though Tracy really doesn't want to um so yes it was great to film it was it was it was really good fun so I'm really looking forward to everyone seeing it was it another one of those weird experiences where you're filming Christmas in a heatwave yeah we shot it over summer so uh yeah and I was obviously pregnant then as well so I was wearing a lot of giant clothes and holding some very strange props but yeah kind of being pregnant in the middle of August whilst wearing a Santa's outfit was definitely one of those moments where you go oh my god this is my career this is what I've chosen to do in my life so What, what do you think the enduring appeal of Tracy Beaker is? Because it's it's two generations now, isn't it? It's, you know, yeah. people your age who grew up with it and their children who are now watching it. I guess we're all just really interested in this wonderful character that Jacqueline Wilson has created. I think Tracy came along at a moment where we didn't have many female role models, especially in kids' telly. We had wonderful comedy, but it was really male orientated mm. all of the programs I used to watch and then along comes Tracy Beaker and I remember reading the script being like gosh I don't know how people are going to react mm. to this because this girl is she, she's got some balls like she is not afraid to stand up for herself and you know she's she's shouting and she's giving it large and I just didn't know how it was going to go down but I think that was her appeal and also it was really nice to have a kids program about something as well like Mm. the comedy the comedy is great and we all like to watch people slip on banana skins but for me I didn't have a clue about looked after children I had no idea about care experienced people it was kind of a very taboo subject as far as I was aware I didn't go to school with anyone who was looked after I might well have done but we never spoke about it so it gave kids a kind of reference point obviously you know, Tracy Beaker is a programme. It's not going to be everyone's experience who has been in care. Obviously, this is just one story. This is just one person, one journey. But it gave people a reference point so that other kids could understand. So when explaining, hey, I'm actually in care, a bit like Tracy Beaker, you know, people could understand it. So I guess we've kind of just really invested in her and we want Tracy to do well and we want her to succeed. And that's why I'll probably still be playing her when I'm 80, to be honest. <laughs> And I'm all right with that. (laughs) I was going to ask you that because it it must be really fascinating as an acting job to actually keep sort of popping back into her life. I can't think many, many other examples where that has happened. Yeah. When it has happened, people have been recast for one reason or another. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I feel incredibly lucky. I think most people, I found it with, especially within the industry that sort of people kind of turn their nose down at it a bit like, oh, you're still playing that character? like, yeah, and I'm really lucky to be able to do that because I've dipped in and out and I've come in at different various stages of her life. And unless you're in a soap opera, you don't really get to play a character for that long. And I do, and that's great. And not only do I get to do that, I get to do a series and then go off and be a fairy godmother for a little yeah. bit or go off and do some Shakespeare, which is great. So I've literally got the best of both worlds. So, yeah, I feel really, really lucky. And I've really enjoyed watching her grow because she's grown up with me as well. So people have watched me kind of grow up too which is a bit weird but well there you go there's another question I want to ask you what 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 is that like as as I mean it's it's a difficult question because you don't know what it's not like yeah Um, (laughs) what is it like to be to be recognized I suppose you were being predominantly recognized by other children as opposed to necessarily being recognized by by adults although mums do you know sometimes sit down and watch tv with their kids given how, as an experience, that goes on to mess up quite a lot of people's lives. 
<laughs> you are normal in the best sense of the word. You know, yeah, where... <laughs> I've never been called normal before. Thank you so much. <laughs> where did it all go right? Oh, do you know what? I, I owe a lot to my parents. You know, I I come from a very kind of normal background, I guess we can say. I don't know what the hell normal is. But my parents, we struggle just along with everyone else financially. But my parents never let us go without. And I've always been super grateful for that. And for me, my work is, it's a job. Uh, I kind of don't bring it home with me. I just have the most amazing people around me. And I guess that's kind of what's kept me grounded, I guess. I find it really weird how people let it get to their heads and go off the rails a bit. I can see how it happens, but I I don't know what went right. I don't know, probably my mum and dad. Thanks, mum and dad. (laughs) (laughs) You run a drama school. I do yeah. yeah so you work with a lot of young children so I yeah. suppose you're able to hand down some some advice to them but I wonder if you we've got people parents listening you know they've got kids that are really good at music or dance or you know it may be even sport you know and mm-hmm. you start to think this kid could go somewhere how do you go about letting that happen in a way that they are keep able to keep their feet on the ground but also I would say in a way that's safe you know because there are baddens in you know, entertainment and sport as much as there is out in the rest of the world. Oh, gosh, yeah, especially at the moment. I mean, I was lucky enough to be around when social media wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Thank goodness, because maybe we'd be having a very different conversation. So, yeah, kids today definitely don't have it easy. I think as a parent, if I... So I've got a five-year-old and she is barking mad, loves to perform, will sing in front of everyone. And, you know, if she decided that that's kind of what she wanted to do as a career, I'd certainly back her, but I would just be totally honest about it and be like, look, it's not that glamorous. Like, here I am sat in some random person's office in the middle of rehearsals. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's not all kind of glitz and glam. But, yeah, I think... If kids do show an interest in, in performing arts, it's just the most wonderful, creative, fabulous industry to get involved in, full of the most amazing people. And I do think it gets a bad rep sometimes by the few dodgy apples that we have within the industry. So, yeah, I would always definitely encourage it, but be cautious and like you do with anything, I guess. It's yeah. a bit like crossing the road, isn't it? Mm, Make yeah. sure you're holding their hand. Yeah. I mean, I think the media has a, a role to play in it. Um, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what happened to Charlotte Church, mm. what happens or what still happens to Millie Bobby Brown in, you know, a way that you, you think, I can't believe they're being talked about like this. They're 13. This is really worrying. Yeah. Um, that does add to it a lot as well. I think, yeah, the media has a, a lot of a lot of responsibility. For oh, gosh. Girls. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it definitely needs shaking up and changing. That's for sure. Social media has just become this awful, gross, toxic place. And I mean, I've not even I don't even look at Twitter anymore because I just can't deal with it. And I'm 32. So I can't mm-hmm. even imagine what. you know a young person must be experiencing especially at a time of your life when you should be like so super excited like you've just been cast in a brand new series you can't wait for everyone to watch it and then you're just met with these horrible negativity comments from bob from tumbridge wells who doesn't have a clue about acting do you know what i mean and it's just it's so ridiculous and i don't understand how people can take time out of their day just to write a nasty comment it baffles me so yes we've got a major major problem but i'm really hoping that you know there'll be a turning point because caroline flack was enough it, we shouldn't yeah. there shouldn't be any more you know yeah. absolutely not so people need to learn a lesson yeah agreed 
you are working with young people now, of course, obviously, in the Beaker Girls. Is, it, is mm-hmm. there a difference? Can you sense a difference about what it's like to be on set as a youngster than when you did it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're definitely way better look, looked after. <laughs> um, I mean, they've got some really strict rules to follow, which are in place for a very, very good reason. But it does make us as adults put in a slightly difficult situation because as a fellow actor, you want to you want to be their mate. You know, I want, I want to be Emma's mate. Uh, and lucky enough, her mum is always around. So I formed that relationship with both of them so that if Emma does have any problems or she's got any queries or questions or doesn't know how to navigate something, then her and her mum can call yeah. me and we'll have a nice chat all together. But yeah, when we were younger, it was I just used to wander off and I used to chat to the lighting guys and find out everything about what how their jobs worked. I used to bug the director constantly. Yes. I used to go into makeup. Do you know what I mean? But we can't do that anymore. So there's definitely a huge change and it is probably for the better. But I find it like quite restrictive, especially as now as an adult, you're kind of really aware of, oh gosh, if I go up and say hello, is that going to be misconstrued and yeah. something else? And it just you know, it's it's a minefield. So yeah. you've just got to try and find the right balance. I bet. Now, going back to Cinderella, mm-hmm. what can we expect this year? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I have to say, and I probably say this every year, but I really, really mean it. This is like one of the best casts I've ever worked with. They are all so incredibly talented. The ensemble are just mind-blowing especially now in covid times they're having to cover us as well um so not only have they got like 500 dancers and songs to learn they're also learning everybody's parts as well just in case touch words touch all of the wood you know covid hits us and you know some of us can't perform and yeah oh it's just brilliant i've worked with john who plays buttons before and he is just hysterically funny the ugly sisters are just as vile and gruesome as you want them to be the prince charming is hilarious and then cinderella is just oh she's got the voice of like a goddess i've just been sat there listening to her sing one of her ballads i mean i'm very hormonal so i am crying at every <laughs> anyway but my goodness just floods of tears she's just incredible so uh yeah people are in for a real treat if they come see us this year oh excellent i think the atmosphere is going to be great as well because i, I mean i've been to the theater quite a few times since things have been at back up mm-hmm. and running i went to see sarah milliken the boss last <laughs> night and she did the old is this anybody's first night out since you know all of this yeah. and there was still a lot of people cheering and there is wow. still so much ambient atmosphere even you know even during the break of people just being delighted to be out you know, yeah. the queue at the bar is still really long, but not everyone's not moaning as <laughs> so much. Yeah, no, no one cares about paying the £800 for a box of Maltesers anymore, <laughs> no, do they? They're no. just happy to be there, which is great. But yeah, I, I, I'm so excited. That first show is just, I'm probably going to cry again, <laughs> um, obviously. But yeah, for me, I haven't done Panto since 2018 because I was like, in 2019, I was like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to give myself a break. I've done a lot of back-to-back Pantos, like nearly 20 years worth. Let's give myself a break this year. Little did I know if I had a crystal ball that I'd been forced into one the year after. So for me, it's been like a good sort of two years since uh, being on stage and in front of an audience. So I am terrified, but mostly I'm just super ecstatic and I can't wait to see that reaction. Yeah. Thank you so much. I usually end with the traditional question of what are you doing next? But I mean, we all know what you're about to do next. I'm going to go and give birth. So that's <laughs> what I'm going to go do. <laughs> Good luck with that, Danny. Uh, thank, thank you ever you. so much for joining us. This has been brilliant. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's been great.
Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Emma Reavy, CEO of the Trussell Trust. Emma, hello. Hi, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you. Thanks for coming on. Just in case any of our listeners don't know, please can you tell us what the Trussell Trust is, what it does and why it exists? Trussell Trust supports a network of over 1,300 food bank centres based across the UK and they provide emergency food and support to people who are in crisis. That The reason people are having to come to food banks is because they've been assessed by a frontline service as not having enough money to be able to afford essentials like food. The UK is firmly in the top 10 richest countries in the world. The Trussell Trust shouldn't need to exist, should it? No, and, and in fact, our vision is for a UK without the need for banks. We think it is possible for them uh, not to need to exist. And yet, last year, for banks in our network provided 2.5 million emergency food parcels to people who simply didn't have enough money to be able to afford food. So it's shocking that we do exist, but it's not right that anyone should have to rely on emergency food aid in the fifth richest country in the world. That's, that can't be right. And it's not a new problem. So I grew up in a single parent family, just me and my mum for a long time. And there were there were many times when I know my mum went without food so that I could have dinner. And if it wasn't for free school dinners, I wouldn't have had a hot meal that day. And we had what my mum called mystery food, like surprise tea, which were tins without the labels on. And I'm 44 now. So this has been going on a long, long time. But it is getting worse, isn't it? It really is. We know 10 years ago, food banks in our network distributed 60,000 food parcels. And last year, as I say, 2.5 million, um, which is just an extraordinary rate of growth. And in the last five years, we've seen a 74% increase in demand. And that's not because there's been more food banks opening. In fact, the number of food banks in our network hasn't really changed much in the last five years. That's because more people are needing to come to food banks because more and more people are finding they just can't make ends meet. And we know, like you're saying about your mum and you, like single parent families are really disproportionately affected. We know families with children uh, in general are, are finding it much harder to make ends meet. And almost two thirds of people coming to food banks um, are living with a disability or somebody in their household is. Uh, and so that's that's really not right, that some people are being more affected than others and finding themselves just not with enough money to be able to afford things like food that we, we all need. There are quite a few misconceptions, I think, around food bank use. Could you clear a few of those up for us, please? One of the things that always upsets me the most is this idea that somehow and other people want to be able to come to food banks. It's a deeply undignified thing to have to come to a food bank. No matter how lovely a service we try to provide or how welcoming, people really struggle to, to come to food banks. And we know lots of people who could benefit from the extra help that food banks could give that still, still don't come. Often the thing for parents that brings them to a food bank is even though they've gone for several days without food or have missed meals over longer periods of time, it's at the point when they can't get food for their kids that they're coming. And we've I, I've sat with people in the past who've said, look, if you can just sort me out with some food for my children, you don't need to worry about me. People that do everything they can not to come to food banks. Also, people have this idea that, that people come to food banks repeatedly, repeatedly, whereas in actual fact, people will leave it as long as possible. And on average, people will only come just about three times in, in a six-month period. Um, so some people will maybe have to come more than that, but other people will come just at the point when they simply aren't able to afford things that month and do their very best not to have to, to come again. So there's lots of misconceptions around uh, food bank use. And the most important thing is, 
coming to food banks is is just a sticking plaster at best if somebody's not able to afford food the likelihood is they're struggling to afford their accommodation Mm -hmm. they're struggling to afford their heating costs they're facing like really impossible decisions about whether they heat their house or they feed their children and so food banks aren't actually an answer at all they're not something really to be celebrated although our volunteers are incredible in what they do it's it's not it's not enough provide emergency food if people can't afford to heat their houses or be in secure accommodation it's just not an answer it's at the very best a sticking plaster i was chatting to a fellow who is a counselor in staffordshire Mm. and he's been doing this for a long time and he is, is mostly a lovely man but he's also quite tory and he said to me he was like but is it really a thing? Is it, do you think it's really a thing, Mickey? Because mm. I, I speak to all of my people, my constituents, and he's really on it. He is really involved in the community. And he's like, and no mm. one tells me that they use a food bank. And I was like, mate, people are ashamed of using a food bank. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really true. It, nobody's nobody's going around publicising they've they've had to go to a food bank. They feel very ashamed of it, which which really people shouldn't, because these are structural things that are forcing people to find themselves in in that situation. But definitely nobody's going to be chatting about that, and and it's often really hidden. We've got food banks, as I say, thirteen hundred and fifty food bank centres across the country, and they're in areas where you wouldn't expect them to be, in really affluent areas. But there's hidden hunger in those areas. There's people struggling with poverty it's not always obvious but it could be somebody on your street who's become unwell and is not able to work and is having to rely on social security and it's not stretching to cover all their bills it could be somebody who's just lost their job you don't you don't know the circumstances that could be driving somebody uh, into a situation where they can't quite make ends meet so emma we've had an interesting four years particularly the last 18 months of course and by interesting i mean awful mm. so are things yeah. considerably worse because of the pandemic slash brexit slash the brexdemic so as i say we've seen demand for banks growing over the last five years so it was already at a record high before the pandemic year on year increases and then during the pandemic we saw a 33 percent increase on on the previous year and actually just in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic the numbers of people at food banks almost doubled overnight so there was this significant increase and obviously that's an unprecedented year and what what happened is it wasn't new reasons why people were coming to food banks it just been exacerbated so losing your job becoming unwell and not being able to work all those reasons uh, increased childcare responsibilities Mm. because your kids aren't at school increased summer holidays or time that your kids aren't at school are all pressures that drive people to food banks and they all kind of came at once and affected a much larger number of people but the the same reason fundamentally that it boils down to is if people are not able to work and they're taking social security it's just not enough to cover the essentials particularly for families with children but then this year again as we technically have come out of the the kind of peak of the pandemic we're still seeing increased numbers of people at food bank compared to before the pandemic so the problem is is not getting better it's, it's getting worse as we go into this winter, we've just seen a £20 cut to universal credit, to social security. That's over a £1,000 a year out of the pockets of people on the lowest incomes. We're seeing inflation spiralling, so the cost of food and fuel is, is going up. And so people's money won't stretch as far. And so we're really concerned about what that will mean for people this winter in particular. Over this last six months, we've been distributing over 5,100 parcels a day 
to people in crisis, 2,000 of those to children. But we anticipate in December that will go up to 7,000 parcels a day because people are having to make those really difficult decisions between heating and eating and that increased pressure of paying for fuel over the winter period really tips families um, over the edge. It's really alarming and definitely none of the things that have happened over the last couple of years, particularly the pandemic, have helped. But what they've really done is just exacerbate problems that were there before and that continue there now. Well, this is it, the Trussell Trust. And, you know, Prime Minister Marcus Rashford, God, I wish. But what Marcus Rashford was doing over the holidays for kids, these are emergency measures. This isn't just like extra biscuits in your cupboard for shits and giggles. This is people at the end of their tether, which is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And I love that one of your missions is to not exist anymore. I think that's amazing. What needs to change to make that happen? It's, it's a great question and, it, and it, we genuinely, everyone that works at Trussell, every volunteer in our food banks definitely doesn't want to be doing this and that's because it, we know it's not right and we know it's not enough for people. So what we need to do in order for people not to come to food banks, we need to have enough money to be able to afford the essentials. 95% of people coming to food banks, our research shows, are experiencing destitution at the point they're coming to food banks, which means their money is just not enough to cover those essentials. And the way you do something about that is that you make sure that work is secure and pays fairly and pays a, a real living wage that people can afford to pay for essentials with their salary. Or, and, and particularly when we're looking at reducing food bank numbers, if somebody is not able to work and is on social security, we have to increase the value of that. So governments at all levels need to be looking at how they can get more cash into people's pockets. So as we can hold them at the point when people aren't able to work uh, and so that they're not forced to turn to emergency food aid, mass distribution of emergency food aid to get by, that, that can't be right. And, and we know it can change. As I say, 10 years ago, we distributed 60,000 parcels. Last year, 2.5 million. This is a new thing, even though it feels for many of us. I know I've got kids that are 12 and 15, for nearly all of their lives, food banks have, have been around. It feels normal, but actually, this level of food aid distribution is really quite a new thing. And it was changes to policy that have got us into this situation. And we can see changes in policy to get us out of this situation. We don't need to accept as inevitable emergency food aid. Now then, I know charities aren't allowed to be politicised and I absolutely get it. But I am. And I would say, listeners, do the maths about what's been going on and who's been in charge for those 10 years. And we have to take this to the ballot box. You know, get angry about this happening. Keep that anger until we can next vote to make this change. Because we can vote to make it change. It can stop and nothing nothing boils my piss more than watching a Tory MP smugly open a food bank because that is just backwards it just it shouldn't be something that is celebrated that you exist I mean it's it's incredible that the Trussell Trust and other food banks exist but we shouldn't Mm. be celebrating it and I think people get caught up in the oh great charities are doing stuff but charities shouldn't have to be doing things that the Mm. state should be sorting out no, I, and, and like I, I am literally blown away by our volunteers and the staff in our food banks. So at a time when so many of us were thinking about how do we step into our homes and keep ourselves safe during the pandemic, these people were walking out and they were saying, not on our watch, our food bank's going to close down when people need us the most. Like these people are extraordinary. Like I, it's a real privilege to, to work alongside these people. 
Uh, and so they should be celebrated for for what they do. But food banks should never be celebrated. It's it's an absolute uh, it's an absolute tragedy that year after year we talk about increased numbers. I want to be talking about numbers going down, numbers like ending. Like I, I want to be part of a town that says we're the first town that ended the need for food banks in our area. Like what what does that look like? And those are conversations that we can have with our elected officials now. In Scotland, the Scottish government are consulting at the moment on a plan to end the need for food banks in Scotland. What does that look like? Like I live in Lambeth. What does it look like for Lambeth Council to have a plan to end the need for food banks? We need to make a plan, stick to it and deliver it. And it's entirely possible. We, we've done so much research. We know what drives um, food bank use. We know what the causes are and we know where the levers are that can be pulled that will change that. So, so we need to make a plan and, and not accept it as inevitable. And as you say, absolutely don't celebrate that this is just part of who we are. This is how we support people if they are in financial crisis or too unwell to be able to work. We celebrate mass distribution of food aid. No, we can, we can do so much better than that. At the moment, you've got a new campaign called Impossible Decisions. You touched on it earlier, but could you tell us a little bit more about what Impossible Decisions is about? We hear time and time again from people who are finding themselves at food banks about like the journey they've been through and the decisions they've made and how often people, exactly as you've been saying about your mum, that have, have been quietly and so their kids don't know skipping meals in order to stretch the budget and to make and people are making those kind of decisions all the time can I afford my fuel to travel to work or can I walk so as I've got that money so as I can put the heating on tonight these are the kind of decisions nobody should be having to make right whether you put your heating on or whether you put food on the table for your children that that cannot be right we can do so much better than that so our impossible decisions campaign is just highlighting that lived reality for so many people in our country uh, at the moment and and the work that we do at the Trussell Trust both to support in the in the immediate so the crisis support how can we help alleviate some of that strain of those impossible decisions through providing emergency food and support but also the work that we do to support somebody longer term to see what we can do to help maximize maximise their income? How can we ensure they're getting their full entitlement? And then the work we do to campaign to remove the need for those impossible decisions and, and end the need for food banks once and for all. I noticed actually that something that comes up in the impossible decisions campaign and also in Shelter's campaign that I've seen advertised is mm. people sleeping in their car and using mm. their car as a home. Is this something that's gone up? There's been a significant increase in the number of people without a secure accommodation. So there's, it manifests in lots of different ways. People will will go from friends' houses and, and get sofa surf or will sleep in their cars or will be housed in temporary accommodation. So bed sits, they're often like far away from their support structures. They might not be placed in temporary accommodations nearby. We've heard of the increased uh, numbers of people who've experienced domestic violence mm. during the pandemic. And uh, uh, when the opportunity has arisen, some many people have fled those difficult and awful situations Situations and find themselves in without accommodation or in temporary and unsuitable accommodation. So there's been a significant increase and we're certainly seeing that reflected in the number of people who are, who are turning to food banks who don't have secure housing and are struggling with all of the problems with that kind of insecure housing and, and homelessness. So it's, a, it's definitely a real problem. And as I say, if somebody's coming to a food bank because they can't afford food, the likelihood is they're really struggling to afford their accommodation and their utilities uh, as well. 
a lot of issues that you've just highlighted there are very much fall on women's shoulders. So obviously I'm aware that some men are affected by domestic violence too, but yeah. it's, it's predominantly women who are affected by domestic violence who are under attack. Mm. And I wondered, is, is it predominantly women using food banks? So our data is reasonably even across men and women. But it could because we, we capture the details of households. Mm. So it might be a woman that's coming um, to the household, but the food that we'd be providing would be for that full household. But we definitely know a single parent is four times more likely uh, to be at the food bank than they are in the general population. And often, in most cases, that is women that are coming with their children in single parent households who are finding themselves at, at food banks. So there's some de definite areas where there's disproportionately uh, affect women. One of the things I would say is that a high proportion of the volunteers in our network who are running our food banks are women as well. So there's an incredible response from amongst women in, in our community as well. And men, obviously, but actually a higher proportion of women who are, are running our food banks. Go birds. So obviously volunteering is one way you can help and there are different ways you can help, certainly with the campaign Impossible Decisions and with the Trussell Trust in general. And that can be as simple as adding your name to the list. What are you going to do with those signatures? We saw during the pandemic that if we shout loudly enough about something, if we make our voices heard, the government can change their mind on stuff. They do change their position in response to something. And as you mentioned, Marcus Rashford is an amazing example of that. Exactly. I'm doing the heart we, shape, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> incredible and his voice and his advocacy on these issues uh, everyone that responded to that caused the government to to change their mind and change their position on a number of different things so what might feel like a, a signature is actually us standing in solidarity with people who are finding themselves in these difficult situations and saying not in our country not in our town not on our watch we want to stand up and we want to be heard and we want the government to to hear that for us this is not okay and, and we want to see something changed and so by joining us in the impossible decisions campaign you're saying actually we want change we want to see something change and we want to be in a situation where we we can expect better for one another for our families and for other people's families as well than just receiving an emergency food parcel now then as well as signatures i imagine you do like a little bit of cold hard cash if people can give that Absolutely. It helps us to provide emergency support in the short term and uh, also provide that longer term support to tackle the underlying reasons why somebody might find themselves at a food bank and work together to bring about that change, that societal change we know is necessary to end the need for food banks. So anything anyone can do to support us, whether that is food in, in the supermarket, one of the collection points at the supermarket or directly to one of our food banks or a, a financial donation, we'd be incredibly grateful and it, everything makes a, it makes a big difference to what we're able to do and where you can i would add listeners don't don't just throw the basics in if you can afford to get like something a little bit treaty like some nice biscuits or something that's a, a bigger bag of pasta put that in because there's nothing nicer that makes you feel more human than getting something that isn't just fucking basic beans or basic spaghetti mm -hmm. also stuff like soap and shower gel yep. and like hygiene products and, and sanitary hygiene for, for women and girls throw that in as well where can people Absolutely. go Emma to to find out more about what you're up to 
So on, on our website, if you go onto our homepage at trusttrust.org, you can click on Impossible Decisions and it'll give you all the information about different ways you, you can support us. And if you're looking to put something, get, put some collection items like food items or toiletries, exactly as you say, make it into Collection Point and you want to find out exactly what your specific food bank needs, you can search your local food bank on our website too and find out if there's anything in particular they're, they're desperately needing. Oh, that's at any excellent. Yeah, that's that's a really good tool. I like that. Emma, before I let you go, on a, on a personal note, how did you get involved in working for a charity? Because I know it's a job that appeals to a lot of people. I always really wanted to work in a charity. I, apart from when I was a bit younger and I thought I might want to be a spy. And so I studied languages. Well, you've given the game away I now. I know, I know. But I, 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 when I got to university, I changed my mind. And so I just got really involved in, in supporting international debt cancellation. So the Jubilee 2000 campaign that was about cancelling international debt and particularly poverty focused overseas and, and, and tackling that. And then as part of working for a charity, an international aid charity, I moved to London. And just there in, in my community, in the streets around where I was living, I just saw so many young people affected by poverty. And so I thought, actually, there's more I can be involved in uh, here in the UK. And so that that kind of started me on a route to, to working in anti-poverty charities in the UK. It's an incredible privilege, actually, to work for an organisation like Trussell. It's doing such in- incredible stuff and, and a real joy. But also, at the same time, I often say it's like the best job and the worst job. A best job I wish I didn't have to have. It's kind of a real mixed set of feelings that you have working for an organisation like Trussell. But as I say, working alongside our volunteers is pretty special. I saw really particularly during the pandemic, the very best of people. Um, the extraordinary response of the British public response of about tens of thousands of people wanting to volunteer and support when people couldn't make food donations in supermarkets because it was hard to get in supermarkets and food wasn't there people collecting food on their doorstep mm-hmm. to try and get it to food banks like the very very best of people that you just think oh this is extraordinary uh, and then it, it, hearing people's stories that have brought them to food banks and how they're struggling and that devastation of of knowing that people in our communities, our neighbours are really struggling like that. It's like the worst of, of feelings alongside. Get involved, people. Trusseltrust.org.uk. And Emma, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great to speak to you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we curtsy to the gentlemen as we discuss all things women's sport. Now, I'm referring to a story that was doing the rounds in the last week about my very own team, Charlton Athletic. (sighs) The story was that the club, under the instruction of Danish-American owner Thomas Sangard, would be rebranding its women's team to Charlton Ladies. Wait, hang on. Isn't that literally a backward step, I hear you ask? And my answer to you is yes, very much so. You might remember when it was pretty normal for women's football teams to be referred to as ladies, Charlton ladies, Arsenal ladies. This was the norm. It was the norm. But in recent years, clubs have moved away from this, with many of them rebranding their women's teams to, um, yeah, women. Okay, look, I'm personally not offended by the term ladies. I know lots of people don't like it, including my esteemed colleagues, Hannah and Mick, and I understand why, but it's not something that bothers me on Julie. Don't fucking at me, alright? We're all just living our lives. 
But in this instance, I don't understand why you would revert back to ladies in a move that is quite clearly regressive, however you feel about the term, and also apparently against the wishes of staff and players at the club, if reports from last week are to be believed. I've spoken to someone at the club this morning who said that when the Sandman, as he is affectionately known among fans, took over the club in 2020, he had three ambitions for the women's team, which was to turn it fully professional, to give the club a one club feel. So that means, you know, that the men and women's teams are all, you know, part of the same family and there's no, you know, poor relation, etc, etc. And also to rebrand to signify this transition. The name is apparently a reference to the team's roots as Croydon ladies, as they once were. And the decision was taken on the basis of the agreement of players who he spoke to six months ago when this was first raised. So there were lots of players there then that are no longer there now. And when he spoke to them about it, no objections were raised. I've got to defend Sangard here because... He's not English, and if I were being generous, which I am, because he's done lots of great things for the women's team, having brought them back under the club from the community side of things, having made them fully professional as per his ambitions. So I am being generous, but I'd say maybe the connotations of ladies, maybe that's slightly different outside of the UK. However, and this is a big however in capital letters, and also a good rule for life, I think, if someone with direct experience of the thing you're talking about, which you have no experience of, tells you that it's bad, just listen to them. So while we're on the subject of ladylike behaviour, let's talk about Chelsea and Australia superstar Sam Kerr, who landed herself in hot water last week after she delivered some rough justice to a pitch invader. During her club's Champions League match against Juventus, a male fan took it upon himself to, like a bell end, run onto the pitch, filming himself whilst doing so. No, really, what have you done today to make you feel proud? With not a steward in sight, Kerr decided to take matters into her own hands and shoulder-barged him onto the floor. And, you know, violence is never the answer unless you're a prick who invades pitches for lols, in which case I've got very little sympathy for the fact that you just had your pants pulled down on a global stage. For her efforts, Kerr was handed a yellow card, which I think is a piss-take, and not just because that kind of bellendery warrants a shoulder-barge, but because there were no stewards acting on the situation. But guess what the bigger outrage is? Had that happened at a man's game, invading the pitch is actually an arrestable offence under Section 4 of the 1991 Football Offences Act. It says, It is an offence for a person at a designated football match to go onto a playing area or area adjacent to the playing area to which spectators are not generally admitted. Guess what isn't classified <laughs> as a designated football match under current law? Oh, no, you didn't, 2011 amendment. Oh, yes, you did. Lads, for the avoidance of doubt, any women's football match is not classified as a designated football match under that current law. The current law defines a designated football match thus. An association football match in which one or both of the participating teams represents a club which is, for the time being, a member, whether full or associate member, of the Football League, the Football Association Premier League, the Football Conference, the Scottish Football League or the Welsh Premier League, or whose home ground is, for the time being, situated outside England and Wales or represents a country or territory. 
I mean, I would argue that Chelsea women are very much, as an associate, representing a club which is in the Premier League. But I'm not a lawyer. I couldn't give you a definitive interpretation of that. Nonetheless, why hasn't women's football been recognised in this? Well, we know the answer, of course. It's sexism anyway. Good news is, since this was flagged by Charlotte Harper for The Athletic, a group of MPs have written to the sports minister asking that the loophole be closed. Damn right. What else to report? Well, the spotty nominations are in, and obviously by spotty I mean Sports Personality of the Year. Emma Raducanu and Dame Sarah Story are the two women on the list of six. I'm a bit torn here. The other nominees are Adam Peaty, Tom Daly, Tyson Fury and Raheem Sterling. All worthy shouts. I'd like to see Raheem Sterling win, just as a massive fuck you to the people who've treated him badly. Otherwise, I'm not very excited by the others. Raducanu deserves it in some ways, her achievement is huge, but the women's game is unpredictable and she's very young. I would personally like to see a bit more from her before we start doling out damehoods. My feeling is that Sarah Story's achievements are incredible. She's got 28 Paralympic medals in her career, which began in Barcelona 1992 at the age of 14 and has seen her compete in eight Paralympic Games. You can't not give it to her. So luckily for us, it is actually us who get to decide who wins by voting during the show, which takes place this Sunday. You know what to do. That is all for me this week. I'll be back in the new year with more women's sport. But in fact, I'll be back on Boxing Day with a review of the year from a sporting perspective, of course, with sports journalists and all round good eggs, Carrie Dunn and Natasha Henry. Until then, ta-ra. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film that we watched this week made me repeatedly ask, but why make him Japanese? But ask it like this, but why? 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 (laughs) Yeah. Mm. This week, we watched 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was both a critical and commercial success created a style icon in the form of Audrey Hepburn's Holly Go Lightly and a romantic standard in the form of Henry Mancini's Oscar and Grammy winner, Moon River. I'm guessing, unless this is literally the first time you've listened to Standard Issue, you'll know that all of this sounds nothing like my kind of film. (laughs) And you'd be right, which is a shame because it's based on a Truman Capote novella and Capote is one of the best writers I've ever read. But more on that in the chat, I'm sure. I'm going to keep this bit short and sweet because I'm pretty sure most people are aware of the cultural impact of Breakfast at Tiffany's, whether they've seen it or not. Either because they recognise its influence in other films and TV, such as Sex and the City and Four Weddings and a Funeral, because they are still haunted by that terrible song by Deep Blue Something, or (laughs) because they had sex in student halls of residence in the 1990s. And, bad as that song was, none of these things have tarnished its reputation as much as when every generation since its original audience finally got round to watching it and thought, fuck me, this is racist. Uh The plot, which is substantially changed from Capote's novella, and more on that coming too, I'm sure. It goes like this. Holly Go Lightly, real name Lula May, is an escort in contemporaneous New York who lives with her cat, 
who is played by Orangey, who has his own Wikipedia page, <laughs> FYI. I mean, sorry, she calls him Caps because she's like lazy and he's free yeah. and she doesn't want to pin him down. And yet the actual owner's called the ginger cat Orangey. That's, I think that's worse. Yeah, only Tom would be worse than that. <laughs> Holly's life changes when a wealthy older woman known as 2E and played by Patricia Neal installs writer and painter for hire Paul <laughs> played by George Peppard in the same apartment building. As the pair become friends he and we learn that Holly has fled an underage marriage in the south and is set on two things snagging a wealthy husband and tormenting her long-suffering Japanese neighbour Mr Yunioshi played by Mickey Rooney. You heard me. And after much shrieking and a lot of really uncomfortable talk about how much he reminds her of her brother, Paul and Holly fall in love, throw a cat into the street, find it, kiss in the rain and live happily ever after until the cat scratches their faces off in a totally justifiable late night attack. (laughs) Okay, not the last bit. So had either of you seen this before? Yes, I have seen it before, I think, when I was at university, in fact. Yes, I have also seen it before and disliked it before. So it's good fun to revisit that. So before we talk about why we didn't like it, which is, I think, (laughs) three for three in this, I thought maybe we could start by talking about why we think some people might. I actually googled, why do people like Breakfast at Tiffany's? Because I was so confused. And I think it's for the aesthetic, right? It's for the aesthetic. Now, I've read the book and I really enjoyed the novella. Like Hannah has mentioned, Truman Capote, brilliant writer. The book is substantially different Mm. and darker and grittier and less optimistic than Mm. the the film. I fucking love it. (laughs) It's way, it's bang up your alley. Yeah, and Um, it's set in the 40s. Yes, yeah. But I think I think people like it because it's got that aesthetic. It's that, it's that glamour, and Holly Golightly is is charming. I suppose she's, she's certainly meant to be charming. There are because it is taken from Truman Capote. There are a couple of absolute zinging lines that are brilliant, but they get lost in the marae of like just awfulness. Um, but we're supposed to be talking about why people like mm. it. I guess glamour maybe and new york and just falling in love with new york bad taste i don't know (laughs) jen jen yeah i guess glamour style i i I mean i I didn't really like it the first time i saw it spoiler alert i didn't really like it this time so yeah i don't really have much to add on that score she doesn't even have a very nice life does she she's free I suppose, in a way that a lot of female characters at that time were and not And yet she free. ends up Whether in she a likes prison. that freedom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She spends a lot of her time in a prison. Oh, no, I mean like a metaphorical prison. And a real prison. But by modern standards, <laughs> is she that free? I don't know. She's pretty miserable. Or she seems to me to be quite sad for a lot of it. So it's not even like she's sort of aspirational, really, is it? I don't know. I think it's a flaw in the film as well as compared to the book. And I know, you know, it's, it is a different beast. It's a very different beast. But in the book, she's 18 or yeah, 19. And so that. she doesn't know yeah. who the fuck she is. She's run away from this marriage that was sort of foisted upon her to the Tin Man. And and she's like trying to work out who she is. So when she says, oh, I'm not Holly Golightly. I'm not Lula May. I don't know who I am. 
I don't, I'm like cat. I don't have an I don't have an identity. That makes much more sense at 18, 19 in a new city trying to work out what you want from your life as opposed to 31, which is how old Hepburn is yeah. in the film. I, t- I totally, totally agree with that. And there's the plot with her husband, that the idea that she's been married off at such a young age, mm. it, it becomes weird when she's older because, I mean, partly because it's played for laughs and, you know, and not in a Truman Capote style. It, it sort of, it doesn't really fit as a plot line. But also there's a really long gap between that happening to her and then the stage we're at now, mm. if that makes sense. So it exactly, makes that whole exactly. plot really weird, just weird. And I wonder whether Hepburn is supposed to be 19 in it. And it's, you know, maybe I was misunderstanding it. And I was thinking, well, perhaps she's, you know, that's how old she's supposed to be. When you get like 30-year-olds playing Juliet, do you know what I mean? It does happen. Yeah, that it could be that she was supposed to be that young. But nothing in it made that clear to me. It would make more sense of the storyline about her brother as well, why she's not seen him since he was 14. Yeah. And if that was only like five or six years ago, it makes much more sense to if that was like 18, 19 years ago. Yeah. Because, I mean, the other major thing that, that, well, huge amounts of it are different, is in the book, the plot is that Paul is looking back at wistfully at this girl that he never knew what happened to her. And, and he's gay. He's a gay... The, the narrator is gay, so she is safe with him when she climbs into his bed yeah. like she does in the film. In the book, she's safe. He isn't He yeah. isn't going to take what all the other rats want from her. Yeah. So the point is, she could be doing anything, which fits with the character of Holly Golightly, as mm. opposed to the fact that she is, you know, you know, settled down. Like I say, made it a prison of her own making. Yeah. She remains a wild thing. Yeah, I just think everyone in this are amongst the worst people on earth. <laughs> and, and the only the only character to me that's even vaguely sympathetic is Mister Yudiyoshi, because like they're wankers to him, right? Yeah, so he's got every right to be neighbors ever. But you can't be sympathetic with him because it is so fucking racist. I just I was watching it and Gary was still at his desk and he just heard me go oh for fuck's sake and he came in from the other room and he didn't say anything he just put his hands over his eyes <laughs> and then walked out again and it was like yep it's pretty much the only reaction why that like i know i know he is japanese in the book but seriously you fucked about with loads of other bits of the book yeah that character does not need to be japanese or does not need to be Mickey Rooney. You know, Rooney. you've got two choices here. Yeah, I mean, I guess they were playing for, uh, yeah, laughs Lols. in inverted commas. And I guess in 1961, possibly America wasn't that fast about being racist towards Japanese people. I don't know. Or in general, I don't I know. Mean, I mean, it was, there was something quite specific about racism towards Japan because, you know, that's how they persuaded a generation of men to go out and kill so many of them yeah i mean yeah it's weirdly euphemistic about what holly and paul do for a living yes. which is again doesn't feel it feels like something that's been ripped away from like the truman capote mm. narrative it's like it wants to say look at this wild alternative lifestyle but then it kind of wants to hang some gauze so you're like peering through at it a little bit yeah so i actually wanted to ask you about that because i haven't read the book and this is only the second time i've seen this film and it is a bit well it's not as explicitly clear as it could be they are both basically escorts right 
He's more what you'd term a catch a man, as in, yeah. well, yeah, a gigolo would imply more partners too, whereas he, she's retaining him as a writer, in inverted commas, right, Jen. She's yeah. helping his writing career, yeah. and I think has a romantic attachment to him, but pays. And yeah, certainly in the book, Holly, the $50 for the powder room gets you a lot more than a, a a recently come back from the toilet. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> a powdered <The> nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A powdered nose. The bedroom door, where she shuts it in the film, uh, is, is left kind of ajar in the book. And yeah, honey, you, you, you spot on. They have sanitized it. And it, it, again, it's all these changes. They're not, they don't seem massive till you add them up. And it absolutely completely changes the tone of what Capote was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they sanitised it and we're not, you know, Holly's companionship is what uh, they get for $50 as opposed to access to another's. Yeah. Well, thank you for clearing that up. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't get to find bits of food in her bra that's not in, covered in the $50. Well, six, that's what $60 will get you, Christ. <laughs> A snack. Going back to what I was saying about it being influential to the degree that, you know, Moon River is now shortcut for, like, anything romantic in New York. You know, that poster that was everywhere. Um, Still is, to an extent. Yeah. And the uh, the romantic ending in the rain, which, you know, is... Was it raining? Uh, for I weddings, didn't even notice. For we- yeah, for weddings and a funeral, like, lifts entirely. And, uh, yeah, so, so I, I wonder if you think that there is some sort of, positive things to say about it in that sense no <laughs> i think it is it's quite a stylish film yeah it is she looks nice in it most of the time yeah i'm trying i'm trying because people do like it people and love I it don't her earplugs are really it. fancy and i suppose you could you could argue that it, it it's in the old Library of Congress thing and you could argue that you could see why because actually as a snapshot of 1961, it's probably relatively uh, informative as in what attitudes were, like what attitudes towards race were. Mm. Uh, from that point of view, uh, it probably is actually quite of quite historic value. And aesthetically as well, like as, as discussed, like in terms of style and what, whatever, because it's uh, that Library of Congress thing is aesthetic importance as well, isn't it? So, mm. yeah, I could totally see it. It's just, it's not for me. I find her, I, again, this is like the Philistines don't like old films, but I find her like, oh, darling, like it just, it's, it's irritating. It's irritating. Yeah, yeah I... No, we were talking about Jimmy Stewart last week, weren't we? Yes. And I had a little look to see how, where he was listed in the greatest actors of all time, like surveys, because obviously he is amazing. Um, and he came in at like at one by, I don't know, the some big cultural body in America, like decided to rank them. And he came at number three, Ooh. Jimmy Stewart. And Audrey Hepburn was number three of the women. And I thought the idea that they were comparable, I found really, 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 yeah, hard to believe. It's interesting, isn't it? Because because people do love this film, because it is held up as like a really, like, it's it's a cupcake. It's a very sweet sort of fluffy film. And I think most people would admit that now. But she's seen as like, it's the iconic role for Audrey Hepburn, you know, obviously Roman Holiday as well. But I just don't think she's a very good actress in this. It's funny. No, she, she. I think she's like she's more like sort of uh, to me as a as a historical character or figure, you know, as woman in history. I think of her way more like Jackie O than I do 
well, or Jackie Kennedy, whatever you want to call her, than I do, like, Catherine Hepburn. She's very interesting. Catherine Hepburn's a fucking giant. She had a very interesting life, Audrey Hepburn, didn't she? Because she she did lots of work for UNICEF in her later years. Uh, I know this because I have a series of books for children like little people big dreams or something like that and uh i found a set in tk maxx of inspirational women with uh, audrey hepburn frida carlo coco chanel and i think anne frank and it doesn't mention in there anywhere like nazis eating disorders or trotsky so <laughs> they've brushed over a few things but yeah she did she she had a very interesting life audrey hepburn she, did, she didn't bring it sure. to her acting, though, did she? No, not I mean, really. To be fair, Jackie Kennedy had a really interesting For life. For sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, obviously, the style was different. We've we've discussed how philistine I am about uh, old films, and Jen is on board with me yep. with this one. Uh, but, yeah, I just even this, it feels very mannered, given that Holly is supposed to be this wild thing. But like I said about the lines, because it's Capote, there are moments where it works. Like, when she's just sort of breezing around the party and shouts timber as her tall mate is so drunk she falls over it's kind of funny it's more believable but it's the earnest stuff the really saccharine earnest stuff that they've shoehorned into this hollywood adaptation of what is quite a a dark sad story uh, Mm. that makes it unbearable so this is the thing that I think that doesn't work, basically, is because, as you say, they've obviously... I've, I've not read the, the novella it's based on, but as you say, they've sanitised it massively. But they haven't sanitised it enough for that to work because I think there is a real sense of underlying sadness in it because he's, you know, a kept man who clearly doesn't really want to be doing that. He wants his books to be selling and, and to be able to, you know, make his own money from his art, etc., etc., and she's obviously, you know, an escort who seems quite sad. So I don't think it works on either level. It's not. It's it's too saccharine for the darkness of it to work, and it's not dark enough for. No, and it's it's too dark for the comedy, is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and it's kind of desperate as well, isn't it? Mm. So Paul, like you just said, Jen, is kind of adrift you know he does want his books to sell but he doesn't actually sit down and write them as as holly points out there's no there's no um tape in his typewriter there's no he's not actually doing any writing because life's been made easy for him whether that makes him like fulfilled clearly not but also he's a kept man and it's like holly to him is something it's almost like he looks down on her because he thinks he could rescue something that he could bring something to someone's life that maybe anyone else he wouldn't have the opportunity to do and also if they do get together which they do at the end who's bringing the money in yeah are they going to feed yeah. the cat he'd get to write well, a book. I, do you know what i was going to say going back to jen's the point that jen just made i actually i think how the cat gets treated oh, is kind of symptomatic awful. of how the dark doesn't work in the comedy because if that had been dark the fact that they've been horrible to that cat almost constantly might have worked but in a like light-hearted romantic comedy, the fact that the cat gets like thrown into a window, it gets thrown out of a car. Yeah, poor cat. Lols. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they make the cat Japanese, Hannah? <laughs> Rated or dated? Dated. Yeah. Blah. I don't think I've discovered one that's that dated has felt more appropriate a word for mm. it. To be honest, not even right. Buddy's song. <laughs> 
I, no, to be honest, Jen, I think that fell dated when it was made. Unbelievable. And I think the difference is as well, a lot of people dating. Do, do rate Breakfast at Tiffany's and it was certainly rated at the time, whereas Buddy Song, uh, I don't think it is in the National Library of like, Well, of you films. know, yeah. I'm calling foul play. It is in the National Library of Stevenage. <laughs> Who's next? It's me. It's me. But, but not until the new year. No. We're going to be watching... The film that I always confuse with single white female, <laughs> The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. They're different films, who knew? Yeah, I don't know why, but it makes me think of Fish, because she's called Rebecca de Mornay, isn't she? she I think is. there's a dish called Cod Mornay. <laughs> I, don't, I just <laughs> probably caught this, Hannah. Well, we'll see you in January, where you'll probably be still wondering what the fuck Mickey meant when she said that. <laughs> I'll probably still be wondering what the fuck I meant when I said that. Standard issue for all women.